Welcome to Beyond the Balance Sheet, the podcast that helps advisors, clinical professionals, and affluent families understand the complexities of issues related to our mental, physical, and emotional well-being. Our co-hosts, Arden O'Connor and Diana Clark, will interview a series of guests on a range of topics, providing informative content and practical tools for professionals and families to consider. Here are your hosts, Arden and Diana. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Beyond the Balance Sheet podcast. We are really excited to have Lisa Kukie here today talking on the topic of guardianships and conservatorships. When are they needed? What are they? What are their limits? So welcome, Lisa. Thank you for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to speak with you both. I'm going to share a little bit about your impressive bio, um, and we're also excited. I n- never mean to leave her out, but we're also joined by my favorite co-host, Diana, and my only co-host, so it makes her my favorite by default. <laughs> um, so Lisa is a partner and executive committee member at Burns & Levinson in Boston. Lisa, I'm fascinated by the areas that you chose to specialize your practice in, adoption, elder abuse, trust litigation, parentage issues, divorce. If I'm totally honest, it sounds like areas that most lawyers try to stay as far away from as possible, Um, which makes you, I think, a really interesting guest because you have such an expertise and skill. Um, And we know that you're a frequent topic, uh, you're a frequent guest and speaker on the topics of trust and estate litigation, estate planning and family law. Um, You also are a contributor to various publications, including Boston Spirit Magazine and a columnist for the Weston Town Crier and Wicked Local Local in Wayland. So welcome today, Lisa. Thank you so much for having me. We're excited. You sound like a very busy woman, Lisa. So really, (laughs) thank you for coming. (laughs) It's it's absolutely my pleasure. You know, I these are these are difficult areas of law, just like Arden said. These are areas that most lawyers stay far, far away from, which keeps me very busy because a lot of my referrals come in through lawyers who don't know what to do in these very difficult situations and who really don't want to touch them with a ten foot. These tend to be very emotionally heavy and charged issues for my clients. And I, um, I, I got into it because I was a former social worker and I enjoy navigating systems for people. I have a, uh, a skill, if you will, with, with strategy and putting things on a chessboard and considering the poetry of many different types of personalities, a court system, a legal system, the mediation system, and how we can manage to get families successfully navigated out of difficult situations, the most difficult of all, whether it's divorce, mental health issues, addiction, financial exploitation, whatever it is, trust litigation, family asset and family business litigation. And I like to navigate them right through and out to the other side. I'm sure it's such a service to the families that you work with. I'm curious if we jump right in, which you've already started to do, tell us a little bit about the particular specialty as it relates to our field. You've been a wonderful partner to us on some very complex cases, but I'm thinking in the areas of substance use and mental health issues, you know, you mentioned you were a social worker, but how did your legal practice evolve in that area? And how do you think about guardianship and conservatorship? You know, I will make the aside comment that so many of our families are hoping that these tools are going to be 
silver bullets and solve all the issues they have when somebody is resistant to getting help. How do you think about when they're needed and, and how to advise families on the process? Thank you, so that's a wonderful question. So guardianship and conservatorship are used, those, those words are used in different states differently. So I should first mention that in some states you can have guardianship of the person and guardianship of the property. And in other states, you have conservatorship over the person and conservatorship over the property. And yet in other states, there may be guardianship over the person and conservatorship over the property. No matter what you call it, because it's all state law controlled, so each state has its own terminology. But no matter what it's called, it is the appointment by a court of an individual or individuals or an entity to make decisions for somebody who lacks mental capacity. I got into this work years ago before being with my current firm. I've been with Burns and Levinson now for over 19 years. I'm into my 20th year right now. I got into this when I was long ago at the Department of Mental Health representing that state agency in Massachusetts. I represented the Department of Mental Retardation in Massachusetts before it became DDS, the Department of Developmental Services. And I did a, uh, a stint working as an assistant attorney general for the DPPC, which is the Disabled Person Protection Commission. And in my capacity as a state lawyer, I assisted with a lot of protective needs of individuals who suffer from mental health issues, behavioral health issues, substance abuse, cognitive disability. And I represented people who are often vulnerable and subject to exploitation or mistreatment by others uh, or by themselves. And that was, that was my entrance into it. So can I follow up what you just said? Can we back up just a little? What does it mean when somebody is incapacitated mm -hmm. so that the court would actually substitute judgment? Yes, so uh, I'm gonna address two issues in that excellent question. So what does it mean to lack mental capacity? There are two different levels of ascertaining that. One is clinical, purely clinical. In order to ascertain whether an individual lacks mental capacity, there needs to be a clinician who is skilled in assessing the extent to which an individual can use rational, uh, rational uh, cognitive process in order to make an informed decision, whether it is to consent or refuse or to make intricate decisions, there needs to be a clinician who is uh, either licensed or somehow trained to explore and probe whether an individual can make a reasoned choice. In order to make a reasoned choice, they need to bring in information. They need to roll it around and consider ramifications and they need to be able to communicate, make and communicate an informed selection. That is, that's mental capacity. That's the ability to give a rational court pro thought process. But there's a second piece to this, and that is that for the court to find it, the court is going to base its decision on what a clinician has advised. And you can have competing clinicians. So I might represent families. I most often represent the families of individuals 
who are presumed to have or believed to have some kind of lack of mental capacity, maybe a lack of capacity to handle one type of decision and not another. As we all know, people are not either globally competent and globally incompetent all in a day. So people could have capacity to make medical treatment decisions, but not have capacity to consider use of their finances and their vulnerability financially. And so I would bring this information to the court and it may be that the individual themselves do not want any deprivation of their liberty rights to make their own decisions, even to make bad decisions. And that person might even retain their own clinician to rebut my clinician. Uh, and, and the family's clinician, and perhaps you would have a contested hearing in court where you're battling experts to ascertain whether uh, and to what extent an individual may suffer in terms of exercising rational court process. So that is what we mean by legal capacity. It's the ability to use rational court process as determined initially by a clinician, but secondarily by a judge. So can you describe for our listeners today, what is the process to go through a guardianship and conservatorship? You know, in, and maybe we can specialize it or make it specific to Massachusetts that, since that's where you're practicing now. Sure, whether in Massachusetts or in most states, it's a court appointment. So it means filing a petition in court and the petition is going to identify where the individual lacks capacity and why. And in any state, there needs to be a link between the diagnosis and the reason for lacking capacity to make certain decisions and the need to make a certain decision. So for example, the fact that somebody may need medical treatment uh, is not going to necessarily warrant a guardianship if they have capacity to make that decision or if the diagnosis does not adversely impact their ability to make that decision. So it's, it's got to be linked, the diagnosis, the decision at hand, and the inability to make that decision at hand needs to be linked. And it needs to be established with the court that that's the link, the nexus, if you will. You file your petition, you ask for a hearing, you get in front of the judge, and you argue the case. If you don't mind, I just want to ask a follow-up question to that. You know, what we see are families who sometimes have somebody who has a fairly quick um, crisis, and they their mental stability goes from, you know, pretty typical to pretty extremely um, impaired. And one of the things I've talked to families about is that it's not as though you show up, you know, if on Monday there's a psychotic episode, you don't show up Wednesday and necessarily get certainly not a permanent, maybe even a temporary um, guardianship. Maybe it's possible, but maybe not. I guess my question to you, Lisa, on, a, on the practical side of things, if I'm a family, are there times where you say, geez, don't even consider this? How much does documentation um, of, a, of a history of an illness play into it? I just am curious because so many families, I think, again, look at this proceeding as the way to sort of solve the issue at hand. Um, and we see many families disappointed by the limits that can be there as much as other families will say, nope, well, this, this actually was the way to go. And it really helped us, particularly on the asset protection side. So I'm curious on the practical side, if you have sort of thoughts for families that might be listening in. 
Absolutely. And your question shows the depth of your experience with the entire the entire comprehensive multidisciplinary system. You've really put your finger on a significant issue. These issues, these cases are time sensitive. There is a strategy of timing. It may be that an individual is uh, lacking mental capacity and making very poor choices that could end up uh, in a pretty egregious way uh, with great consequences for the individual. Uh, but ultimately, if you can't get into court fast enough, what good is it pursuing guardianship or conservatorship? There are ways to move very quickly so you can strike while the iron's hot. And I do a lot of this kind of advanced planning with clients whose advisors are savvy enough to have them come to me before the individual hits that revolving door and is back in crisis again. Individuals who suffer from behavioral health issues very often have recurring issues. They relapse, they recover, and you see a revolving door to this. When professionals out there see this with a family, that's when you refer them to me, not in the middle of the crisis because naturally the crisis will abate. People get better. They eventually get treated. They eventually start to regain their mental capacity as they start to recuperate and get better. But there is a cycle to this. And so catching it even in the best moment is not bad because this allows me to plan. And how do I plan? So I get my team together. We start preparing the pleadings. And as soon as the individual is beginning to struggle, somebody calls me and that's when I know, let's get the medical certificate going right at that moment when you see smoke and before you see fire, that is my key opportunity in the door. That's my entrance. And then before it even ignites into flames, I'm in court. And by the time we're in flames, the court's ready to make its decision. And you just strike it right while the iron's hot. That's what I like to do. Sometimes an individual's incapacity will last long enough that I can get into court and get through the system without taking too much time. And it depends which court and it depends when. So for example, in the beginning of the pandemic, the court was allowing me to have telehealth appointments and telehealth court hearings uh, and, and telephone, telephonic hearings. I got these cases resolved so quickly. But then we, the courts developed a, a backlog because there were a lot of other matters that had been pending and pushed. But so it's taking a little longer now, but generally if there's an urgency, I can get right into court within 72 hours. So I have a question. We work with families who are struggling. Sometimes they call up, as Arden said, and want that legal solution to occur yesterday. But we have other families who are really reluctant to take any legal action whatsoever, regardless of how ill their loved one is, because of the potential stigma of some of these procedures. How do you work with families who are really resistant in this way? So the emotional content of a family is often self-defeating for families. And so I am the person on the team who will often check in with the client on the side without the rest of the team included. And I might identify what I'm seeing. I try to find a softer way to let my clients know if they are, if they have a blind spot 
to things that are happening. Uh, they know that they need me and they may think they need me in one way and I might identify another need. And sometimes I'm able to explain it with mindful compassion uh, to the client so that, so that there's less acting in self-defeating ways. Uh, my team is the team that handles the actual preparation of pleadings and handles the hard, cold aspects of the law. But what I bring to the table is relationship with my clients and my clients come to trust me. They stay with me for a long time. They ask me for referrals. They ask me for support in many different ways. Uh, and I have long-term relationships with all of my clients and the families. Uh, so they very often will listen to me if I say, hey, we've got to talk. I see the content here is causing you great agitation. I don't blame you, but let me tell you how you can make this process easier. And let me tell you what you might be doing that is actually ironically self-defeating to your own goals. What do you do in situations where you have a family member who is concerned, you know, the, the client definitely needs a guardianship, conservatorship, or both, but a family member who says, they're not going to like this, you know, they're going to feel controlled by this process. I don't want to go forward because I know my son, daughter, father, whomever isn't going to want this. How do you address those concerns um, or other fears that, that clients may have about some of the negative impact of going through these proceedings? Yeah, there's, there's many nuances. That's one of the lovely things about this area of law for me is that it is so nuanced. Each nuance gives me opportunity. Nothing is cut and dry. There's no black and white. Everything is gray. And I can see that gray. So I'm able to say to clients, perhaps it would make more sense for you to consider a limited guardianship or a limited conservatorship, whether it's limited in scope or limited in duration. We might want a one month or six month or one year appointment so that it doesn't feel like somebody's losing their rights for life. Or perhaps we have limitations that relate to the scope of decision making that the guardian or conservator can exercise. And in this way, sometimes I can get consensus because what we're doing is we're tailoring the law around the realities of life and the realities of family. And if I can do that, that's a win because then we're addressing only that fine area where there's a problem and we're not coming in with a steamroller and steamrolling over somebody's rights. We're really tailoring it around what needs to be done. And that is a win-win. So that's one way that I can handle that resistance. I love that because when I think about in our field, we talk about interventions and people, we get calls all the time. We need to do an intervention. We need to do an intervention. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that is the right tool. And sometimes we do need to do an intervention, but there is just as often a more limited, less um, severe or aggressive way to approach the situation. And it sounds like in your legal positioning, you are also looking for the least intrusive alternative, which may make families more comfortable. There is an absolutely, there's another least intrusive alternative. And I was speaking with a client just this morning about it shortly before this podcast. Uh, I suggested to the family that they consider an incentive trust. So I have created trusts for families that have incentives in there for the individual who's suffering from behavioral health challenges. And what we do is we set up milestones 
uh, and identify what it is that the family thinks will keep the individual healthy and in a long-term recovery and out of that revolving door that I was mentioning before. And in so doing, we're not asking the court for any authority. We're not intervening with any legal intervention whatsoever. The strategy of intervention is purely private and it's done with an incentive trust by which the individual who's struggling understands the milestones and the treatment goals and is participating in order to achieve those milestones and goals, those benchmarks, such as, for example, attending therapy every week, staying on medications, showing up for an injectable, whatever it might be, or coming back at a certain curfew, coming home by curfew, whatever that curfew may be. There may be different types of milestones. Uh, and, and so we set that up using a trust that will provide rewards for meeting the milestones. And that's one way to do it. Another strategy that I've used is a contract, the same kind. The clinicians all know that you've been contracting for decades. Well, lawyers can do that too. So long as the individual has sufficient mental capacity to uh, contract and to know what it means to make these agreements, you can have an intervention that ends up with a legal contract or a memorandum of understanding by which the family and the individual are making certain promises to each other that promote recovery on the long term. Well, I'm going to bring the, the podcast to a place that we don't typically go, but tell us a little. I know you've written about the Britney Spears case, and I think it feeds right into the question that we have around, and we've touched on this, family dynamics and guardianship and conservatorships. Share your thoughts on this particular one, because I know it's it's a, a good example of one that's you know square in the public eye that people can relate to, and I'm not sure that the dynamics you know, I, it may be on the more extreme side, but I'm not sure that these are dynamics that are never heard of in these types of situations. Right. Absolutely agreed. This this case caught my attention and it's I've been following along with it. We know so little, I should say, we don't really know uh, we haven't seen any medical certificates. We haven't seen the doctor's reports. We haven't seen psychological reports. We don't really know what's going on clinically. We only see what the news media outlets are reporting about the legal process. But we've seen a fantastic trust company decline to serve. And we've seen the father say, I'm out, you know, let me out of this after fighting to stay in for so long. And we've seen Brittany say, this is awful. I, I My rights have been absolutely abrogated. Uh, and so we're seeing so much. Uh, we've seen prior counsel who was court appointed and what he did, we see current counsel who's quite able, quite capable, and he's doing a great job from all that I can see, even though I don't know the details of it because I'm just part of the public, but I'm the knowing public. Uh, but it looks like things are going well. It looks like uh, Brittany has gained enough momentum to push her father out of the lead role as conservator, uh, but it looks like the court will most likely appoint somebody else. What has been most interesting to me is that nobody is saying that Brittany has recovered to the extent that she has sufficient mental capacity to handle all of her finances. And those finances must be very complex. So this is not just small level finances, this is big. Um, but she's doing a great job. Obviously she has capacity in some ways, and obviously there's something going on that we don't really know about where her capacity 
perhaps is not as great as, as she would present when you see her on screen. Um, so it's, it's curious. I will say that I've, I have read about some of her social media posts and in those posts I have seen uh, wording that she's used that make me think, Brittany, you're becoming your own worst enemy. You know, you're actually engaging in those self-defeating behaviors that are not very uh, positive and not promoting your own interest right now. On the other hand, I think her lawyer is positioning her beautifully. I think he's doing a great job and I knew he would. He's from a very reputable firm and he himself is quite reputable. So I've been following the case. Uh, the only, my only issue in life is that I miss my calling. I should have been a musician like she. I just think the world <laughs> of her. <laughs> we like to close this podcast with, what would you like to leave our listeners with? So I, I think it's important for uh, listeners to recognize that mental health and behavioral health problems happen in every family and that nobody's immune from it and that we are all together. I remember when I worked uh, first for the Department of Mental Retardation, DDS, and then for the Department of Mental Health, I remember that the attitudes of external stakeholders was very different. And those who are in the uh, cognitive um, intellectual injury or delay community were treated in a way where there was a lot of sympathy. And those who were in the system for mental health and behavioral health needs were treated as though they were making volitional bad choices and that they were intentionally acting out. And that always bothered me. So now that you've given me the opportunity to say something completely extemporaneous, I think we need to all recognize that much of mental health is outside of the control of those people that we love and that it happens everywhere and in every family and there is no need to feel any shame when we feel shame we start to blame let's stop the shame stop the blame stop the anger and just start treating it, it requires a multidisciplinary approach it requires putting people together like clinicians business people lawyers all kinds of different multidisciplinary people in order to resolve these very difficult issues and hopefully on the long term without any shame. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Lisa. It's always a pleasure to collaborate with you on these types of engagements or actual client work. We appreciate your thought, your candor, um, and just your overall demeanor and passion about this very important and very difficult work. Uh, we also want to thank anybody who tuned in today, either um, via video or via uh, audio. If you are so inclined, please rate us on your podcast platform of choice and leave a review. Thanks so much. And we look forward to you joining us on our next episode of Beyond the Balance Sheet podcast. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Balance Sheet, a podcast designed to help advisors, clinical professionals, and affluent families solve some of their biggest medical, psychiatric, and emotional challenges. Visit beyondthebalancesheet.com to read more about our guests and resources and sign up for our newsletter.